Aguilar, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Ireland trying to go forward. New Zealand trying to hold the out ball at the back. Deegan has to pick up the back. And Max Deegan is down. Ireland have scored again. Max Deegan from Lansdowne at St. Michael's College. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. One of the things that came up this week um, was Ian Madigan's Bristol team were crowned champions and there was some talk um, in uh, butthurt English club circles about ring fencing the Aviva Premiership um, as soon as possible, but it looks like it'll probably happen in 2020 between the 13 stakeholders and possibly one other club with the extra weekends supposedly being taken out of European weekends because the competition has lost its luster. Um, this is just transparently uh, a bunch of losers crowing about losing again. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, there was initially. <laughs> they they're unbelievable. Really, they'll say anything. Those um, those English Premiership club owners who own something like twelve. Maybe you can count Bristol in there as well. Maybe 13, maybe 14 of the clubs that exist in England. And she's a union of over a thousand clubs. They own 14 of the clubs. There's over a thousand clubs in the rugby football union, the English union. And they keep on trying to dictate terms to everyone, to their own union, to other unions, to other clubs, to other provinces, to other regions. These are loss-making businesses trying to dictate terms to wealthy unions, well-run clubs and provinces, and they're utterly untrustworthy. Um, you know, they are horrible, unrepentant, Brexit-loving Tories for the most part, and I have absolutely no sympathy and no trust in and there was another article by Kitson in The Guardian saying that a, nor- a great solution would be a British and Irish league. And while, you know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, a lot of people in Ireland would have looked at that and gone, that is a good idea. Most people who have any interest in Irish rugby now, or especially those of a deep interest, have very little interest in trying to do business with, with the English clubs because they are, you cannot trust them as far as you could throw them well it's been going on for 20 years so Ulster won their uh, their European Cup in in 1999 uh, in one of the in one of the years when the English clubs didn't participate in Europe so I mean I'd say if you looked at uh, sort of rugby supporters in England and as you know what proportion of them voted for Brexit it would be above the proportion of the rest of the population that voted for Brexit Um, and you know, pulling out of Europe, withdrawing from Europe is this. This isn't just you know this cabal of guys, this individual twenties. This is a mindset from the upper clubs. I think 
apart from all the other stakeholders, to use that phrase that you discussed or that you, you listed earlier on, there's there's all the other clubs in England as well. Like, I guess that football clubs, the big football clubs, have a massive hold, haven't been around for for years and years and years, haven't been through, like, England haven't been through two world wars. Uh, it's been huge ups and downs uh, in the sort of the social fabric. And they've really coalesced. And so sort of talking about football, like, I was reading about how Man City are still viewed as like they're not really a proper big club in the same way that Chelsea aren't really a proper big club that proper big clubs uh, sort of look down their nose at the nouveau riche. Chelsea have had a lot of money for uh, 15 years now but like I still don't I still think of them as Chelsea um, which means they're not a massive club. So I suppose where I'm going with that is the idea that it takes really a long time to, and like a lot of emotional connection, to get the sort of support that the football teams have, that the big football teams have. Um, plus, rugby's ultimately a player's game. So yeah. a lot of the guys who are members of clubs all around England, they like playing rugby. Yeah. And like They like watching it, and they want to watch the best stuff, and they want to be told that you know, the premiership is good because it has relegation or it's going to be better because it won't have relegation and that Europe drags down English rugby because when the European Cup started off, probably one of the incidents that I really remember, and it didn't involve an English, sorry, an Irish team, because a lot of the really good moments did involve Irish teams, was uh, Nigel Walker scoring for Cardiff against Bath in a packed Cardiff, arm, like in the old arms mm. park. Uh, the one beside the, mm-hmm. the sort of the national stadium as as was before the millennium was even built mm-hmm. and it was like there was just this huge roar went up and he was fist pumping and like everyone like people loved it because mm. it was that international like it was it was across the uh, the Menai Straits like it was it was it was that competition was in and people just couldn't get and like the Welsh couldn't get enough mm. of their teams beating the English and that's kind of England's role, you know, but like Leicester are probably the, the flag, Leicester and Wasp, but I'd Leicester say Leicester Wasp, yeah. are the are the, the flag bearers of English club rugby and uh, year after year, they send dozens, if not hundreds of people to the Heineken Cup final because they just go as rugby fans. Hmm. They, they hope that the Tigers are going to be there, but they like the weekend because they like their rugby. Yeah. Let me just say one thing about the revamping of the European uh, Cup system as was to reduce it to five groups and to let lose the title sponsorship and so that no one knows what it's actually called anymore. They've reduced the excitement of the tournament by making the groups uh, less exciting to the end, uh, basically, um, rather than when it was six pools with four runners of qualifying. It seems like there's less oh, uh, last-day drama in the pool section and more dead rubbers as a, redu- as a, as a result. They change something for the sake of changing. There's always going to be... It's, it's The same thing happens in, in when people alter the laws. There's a law of unintended consequences. So they established s- s- that they were going to change something and they thought, what well, could they change? And it hasn't worked. Mm. You know, they were... Mark McCarthy especially who is really objectionable in my eyes, was of was all about this is going to be like the Champions League. We're going to bring in five sponsors instead of just one. We're going to do this now. They have two sponsors, both of whom are paying less 
than uh, Heineken did. So it's Heineken and Turkish Airlines. So where are the rest of it? Where are our other three sponsors? They don't exist. So there's been a massive failure from these guys who promised the earth and haven't delivered and are now blaming the product which they created without taking any of the blame themselves. I don't think the pool stagers are, are really... Uh, the first year, there was certainly no competition, but I think that was a quirk rather than a, a structural caused by the structure. I do think the timing of the quarterfinals uh, with the sort of the trail on to the semifinals has, has hurt the competition and that it comes so hot in the heels of the Six Nations that I don't think the teams have, a, have an opportunity to prepare and just because they probably can't get a big game under their belt and really play their best stuff. And it's difficult to know what's what. So, like, the Irish approach is to rest all the internationals after the Six Nations and just hope that they'll they'll land and hit the ground running. Whereas the English approach is to absolutely flog them when they come back and to tape up the guys who are injured in the hope that they can produce and that the fellas have been playing week in, week out, uh, aren't absolutely exhausted. It It just doesn't benefit... The competition that at the quarterfinal stage they've 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 kind of buried it away. Um, they buried the final in mid-May as well. They did bury the final. That's the other thing that the Premiership owners wanted their fifteen or sixteen-year-old competition to pretend it's the same relevance as the Bouclier de Bredou. You know, which is played later, like the knockouts in France. Well, that's played mid-July at this stage. Yeah, but well, they are. Play- I mean, the, the semi-final of, in France is played in the first week of June or something mm. like that, and or or later even. But, but the, I, I do think it's the first week of June. The bouclier though is a, is a different. It's it's a far more antiquity, far more importance than than the Premiership. The bouclier has an incredible history, and the Premiership is a silver-plated trophy made up fifteen or sixteen years ago. I'd also like to throw in that, like, the Brits boycotted the World Cup until 1950 in soccer. They have loads of previous in this. Basically, not trusting foreigners. Johnny Farner doesn't like it up him. (laughs) Who does like it up him? I don't. I don't think at the same time. I don't think the the Premiership is a is a tin plate competition again. Like I remember when the no, I'm just talking literally about the trophy. Silver plated, silver plated, yeah. But I, but I remember when the courage leagues were introduced and the competition that it brought between Bath and Earth. Wasps. Sorry, not Bath and uh, Bath and Leicester. Mm. But also Arl, like Arl were really Arl were really competitive um, in the first few. You know, playing out of the north and not glamorous, but but had a re- like was a really good club team. Yeah. And, and the opportunity was there. I think as as the sort of the but so a lot of the, the, those other clubs who've got. You know, Mosley were a big club, an important club. Yeah, Newcastle Gosforth were a big Newcastle club. Gosford. Newcastle are still in the Premiership. Coventry, West Hartlepool. These are these are big clubs. You know, they were important clubs. Newcastle are doing better than they've done in a decade. So I think, like, I think it's good, and I think there's there's a pretty good spread. I think the rise of Exeter has been really good for Brilliant. for English rugby, but I think that was that's more due to Exeter than to some sort of master plan or like anybody else caring about extra that's down to the chiefs themselves that is down to that's down to that's down to exceptional well it's down to success at every level it's down to exceptional personalities and an exceptional owner and a brilliant head coach um it's also down to the people of extra who turned out to support extra from for a long time and under a lot of circumstances and devon were always very strong in the all county championship yeah. like devon and cornwall were two of the the, the real powerhouses yeah 
Um, and it certainly wasn't like I think Redruth was probably the best Cornish team for a long time, but like it was too far. <laughs> yeah, it's a long way down. It's a long way to go. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, Penzance, I think, were pretty strong. But I think Redruth, Pen- Redruth, and Penzance were would have yeah, been three big Cornish like, the, clubs. The three yeah. big. So you know, Exeter gives them that. There's a really good spread now um, with. Sale and Newcastle, Exeter. That's good for the English game. We, I've I've come across as being extremely uh, anti-English, and I'm not anti-English. I'm anti-Premiership club owners who practically, uh, to a man, I dislike. I would even be middling while I've been complimentary on Tony Rowe. I don't think he's a paragon of all virtues. Um, but I, I, one of the other things that I've thought and has been building in my head over quite a long period of time is that. The problem, one of the problems with um, rugby in England is that none of the clubs make any money because all their players are overpaid. Um, their wage bills, the club's wage bills is their biggest expense. Um, and I think only one club makes a profit. So you've obviously got, you've obviously got a big issue there with players just being overpaid. They can't. They keep on having to, their owners or their boards have to dip into their own pockets to uh, to pay p- players because the club is making a loss. Do they have um, some kind of measure of solvency required? As in, like the wages can only be X percent of turnover. Because I don't know. That's just a measurement. It's they don't have any asking th- questions that lead to dead air. <laughs> they far, that's far too good a question. <laughs> yeah, good question. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have they don't have the, a rule like that in football. But it's traditionally how uh, a club's finances are. It's, it's a rule of thumb guide for measuring a club's the wealth or the health of a club's finances is if they're paying more than fifty percent of their turnover in wages, they're paying too much. Okay, well that's that's very interesting. Uh, there is no, there is no financial fair play in, um, in in the English Premiership. There was essentially, or the ostensibly rather, a salary cap, which it is widely known that at least two clubs f- break on a yearly basis. I guess a lot of the because the widely rumored. Yes, as like, I, I think actually, allegedly widely rumored. I thought it was two clubs made money. I thought Leicester and Exeter made money. Uh, the argument being that they own their own grounds. Um, the and, and and Leicester, Leicester pack them in still. Like Leicester aren't, you know, winning the winning the league anymore. But they're still getting more than averaging about twenty twenty one thousand people. It's a really big attendance. They have the biggest average attendance of any rugby um, of any rugby team in Britain and Ireland. And they so all the clubs essentially have become playthings of wealthy men. They have, and that's we go back to the. Like what's been good, what's been bad. There's a lot of sort of, uh, it, it, a lot of it is down to the individual rather than down to the structures that you might say. So it's sort of down to the outcome rather than the process, broadly speaking, in that we're not talking about an entity that has to roll on with trustees uh, where they have to cut their cloth to suit their means yeah. because they have to pass it on better. You're talking about some, like a guy is a billionaire. It's a vanity project. Which is a vanity project yeah. and this is where he wants to put his money. And it's and legitimate. He can put his money where he wants and to And he put can it. do whatever he wants he to do. He should put it essentially, I think, in my opinion, he should put it into the tax, you know, like regular folk do. But these people live by different uh, norms. I would also say the other thing to to, uh, to bear in mind is when you compare it to football, which a lot of the 
premiership owners seem intent on doing is that you can play a lot of football games because it's not a collision sport. It's barely a contact sport anymore. How many football games are there in a, in a premiership season? 38. 38. So they can definitely play two games per week. You know, and they can pack in, let's say not a huge club, let's say a median, 30,000 people, 38 times a year. Well, 19 home games. So, sorry, 19 home games. Like, that's a that's a lot of bums on seats. 23 home games if you're at the championship. If yeah. Like a much smaller club. Yeah. A lot of games. Uh, so there's a lot of games there. And rugby, in the premiership, you're going to have 11 home games. Um... And you're going to have a stadium. You'd be doing well if you're 10,000 to 11,000 capacity. It's just a huge disparity in the number of, of people come to watch your games. Someone needs to stop him. Thunder's in there. That'll knock the wind out of him. Speaking of another league with structural problems, uh, the Pro 14... Um, has two South African teams in it, which is from uh, another com- another continent, and um, they bear no relation to the rest of the teams in the league, um, and they're rubbish. Um, well, the Chiefs are good. Are they going to qualify for the playoffs? They could. They could. Uh, the Kings are rubbish, but the Cheetahs are good and exciting. But uh, you've, you've touched on the point that the continental difference is extremely obvious, and to me, it, it upsets everything. I, I think that there is, it's it's bizarre to have uh, an away fixture, which is on a different continent as a regular part of your season. The idea that that is, the idea that that's legitimate, that, you know, oh, I'm just going to take an away trip. It'll cost me 700 euro to fly there. Oh, don't worry, it's in the same time zone. I, I find that utterly bizarre. I know there are people who can do it. I think call them baby boomers. I think, but if you're if you're talking about finding that really strange, that's been going on for we talking 20, 25 years. When did the Super Ten start in nineteen ninety four? So 24, 24 years ago, and it's been uh, expanded <laughs> to even more time zones with the introduction of the Argentinian teams, which. Mm was quite widely applauded up here, but they just spent all their time on planes, those mm. players. Like, I, I look at the Southern Hemisphere and there was a lot of hand-wringing after the 2015 World Cup and how far behind the Northern Hemisphere teams were and then the Argentinians were introduced and I think there was more hand-wringing from us about they're only going to get better by playing New Zealand all the time. And what wasn't mentioned is they might get worse by just being in airports and planes flying to different time zones mm. and then playing rugby matches two days later all the time because and now they get to go to Japan as well and now they get to go to Japan as well because because they're so far apart and from from that point of view and like the matches are played when most of the population of the other countries is asleep uh, you know again because it's just they're so they're so far apart from each other so like at least South Africa playing in Europe makes sense from a TV point of view that you can play and going back to the 1997 like this was the reason that the Lions, one of the reasons, certainly, I mean, that video was another one of the reasons, and the Lions winning was another one of the reasons. But when the Lions played in 1997 in South Africa, there was a law that because there was such a disparity between the wealthy people and, and the, the sort of the rest of the country, which was loads and loads and loads of people, um, 
no events couldn't be ring fenced by a TV broadcaster. Mm-hmm. If 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 they said and like there was satellite TV, there was Supersport, but some of the events you just had to show. They had to be free to air, and the government told you, and like there's no getting around it. And the Lions tests were one of those matches. So they were play, and like I think it was stuff that played at like five o'clock in South Africa was was the allotted time for these pre broadcasts, which meant they were shown at four o'clock over here, and there was nothing else on over here. Mm. So the Lions at that time of year and the. The Lions tests were just awesome TV. Um, whereas four years before that, the test matches were on at like four in the morning, back yeah, from New Zealand. Yeah, so amateur professional era and, and there's a big change. So like I think from that point of view, the, uh, the South African introduction into Europe makes more sense. Now, I think the fact that the Kings are such like are so poor and play in front of such empty stadiums and like such enormous stadiums. Mm. But say it was the say it was like the Sharks and uh the the Lions were playing. Or say it was Province and the and the Blue Bulls were playing. Um they'd be awesome. They'd be awesome fixtures, mm. I think. Um you have the but then you get to the stage that the Northern Hemisphere season goes on at this time of the year and the Southern Hemisphere season goes on for a large part of the off-season of mm-hmm. the Northern Hemisphere. So, like, you get to global rugby and that's that's the next kind of thing that has to... That's the next nettle that has to be grasped and it's... Where's everybody going to end up playing? Yeah. Like, where's, where's the big money? <laughs> it's yeah. in Japan and China. So, um Nicholas and Elkin has uh, blazed the trail. That's that's something which we'll come to in another podcast because I think we have we have strong but ill-defined positions on the global season. Have to give credit to the forwards. <laughs> Referee blows for half time. On a much more local topic, uh, Max Deegan was running the show against... Uh, he's, he's global these days. <laughs> ...against Zebra uh, on Saturday afternoon, um, including noticing that the ball was out of the back of Rook, which is apparently a revolutionary tactic. <laughs> Been trying that since I was under nine. Um, we had previously pegged him as someone who might uh, go on the tour to Australia during the summer. Um, I feel more certain about it than ever. I think he's extremely talented. And I think he's shown it every time that he plays for Leinster that he's uh, he's got the ability to make that step up, and he's part of the the, the actual golden generation um, of the uh, 2016 under twenties World Cup team. Yeah, Deegan is is really talented. He performed in a game in which a lot of Leinster players didn't perform. The Zebra game was really scratchy performance from Leinster, and understandably so. Like Zebra are a bad team. They had an incredibly uh, patched together match day squad which had something like either six or, or seven uh, props in the in the 23 they had a they had a bucket of props on the bench uh, and what and we were and Leinster were Leinster were poor you know really uh, with the exception of of Deegan and and maybe one or two others and the subs did well when they came on but um, responding to Murray Kinson a tweet um, I remember seeing Deegan a couple of times in school and for Irish schools and I haven't seen a better uh, back row handler um, ever at underage level yeah, certainly in terms of an Irish player um, 
and we haven't seen the, his full range of skills yet at, at Leinster because obviously it's a bigger his pro rugby now it's it's senior rugby's he's not just strolling through contacts like he was in in his age grade days but he has more he has more tricks in the bag um, I thought uh, it was actually it wasn't a, it wasn't the worst separate team like the Carlo Canna playing the Manazzi playing but I thought the mentality was awful like every time Manazzi got the ball having absolutely lit up the Six Nations running from full back he just kicked it up in the air um, and who who's in the airport and saw them without a hair was that were you? I was I saw them you in were the airport back in I the didn't air. realize I didn't know if they had it was it was a strange time I didn't know if they'd played or if they hadn't played they they hadn't a hair out of place. They didn't. I thought they'd just arriving and were cutting it, cutting it tight to get to to get to the ground. Uh, and it, it turns out that it was probably, probably an hour, maybe seventy minutes after the final whistle. Like they were. They, they just looked like they hadn't played. Yeah, and they they just weren't dialed in. So it's 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 probably not the best match to say that this guy has impeccable international credentials. Uh, let's 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 run with it though. But. That said, I think the thing that really, the things for me that have stood out about Deegan, there was one incident in the match against the Cheetahs that when the uh, Leinster had, had that whole passport for Rango and they'd uh, had a sort of a weakened team and they got beat up down there. Mm. And they, the Cheetahs, I mean, the Cheetahs are good. And again, I think it's one of the appealing things about the introduction of the South African teams is the the different style of rugby that it, that it brings and there's sort of there's, there's no respect for uh, names and traditions from the South African teams like they think they'll beat all the northern teams well certainly the Cheetahs I think believe that they'll beat all and they certainly believe that they'll beat them in, in Bloom um, and Deegan came on as a replacement that day and he went looking for the ball and he, he took good lines and he took the ball into contact and he didn't go hiding whereas you wanted some of the more uh, celebrated up-and-coming names from Leinster, if that's not a, an oxymoron, to to show that leadership role, to show that they would do what Jamie Heaslip or Johnny Sexton would do, where they on the pitch, or Izzy Nasiba. And it, that, so that was my first sort of uh, experience of Deegan playing senior rugby. What stood out for me in the Zebra game is how good his skills are. And he, but he's got a well-rounded game, so he's he's putting good tackles for Leinster all season. He's got a number of steals on the deck, including one late, I think, against Edinburgh. Mm. That won the penalty that ended the game, and that was at the beginning of Edinburgh's re- renaissance under um, Cockrell. Uh, proved at the weekend that he's again that he's a very good line-out forward. Those are the so he's he's got he's got a very well-rounded skill set. But he made one catch in the build-up to a try from a high pass, and it was absolutely bucketing rain with his left hand and just brought it down and then moved it on and you're like that guy is seriously skillful yeah. and that is in in my experience at any level of the game somebody who's got a well-rounded skill set but particularly who has the footballing skill like f- particularly you need the hardness but then particularly that has the footballing ability that sort of that goes that doesn't necessarily go with it but that complements it that guy is going to be able to make the step up. Yeah. Whereas a fella who's like a very powerful runner um, and like shows incredible athletic prowess but mightn't be the best footballer can can sometimes struggle. And like without being a criticism, I like I think uh, Copeland is, is a bit like that. Like Robin Copeland has shown flashes and certainly in his in his, his match against Georgia when he came on for a few minutes, like he looked absolutely 
unbelievable. He's an and amazing he's, athlete. And he's played some incredible games for, for Cardiff and for Munster yeah. on occasion. And he will do it for Connacht again. Like he he's but it, it doesn't happen all the time and he, he just hasn't made the step up that you're you're kind of hoping that he that you hope that he would do, yeah. Because like he's a phenomenal athlete, he's a phenomenal yeah. footballer. He can do he is, He's stuff. got a lot of football he's, in he's him got, as well. He's got nearly everything. Yeah. But I don't know. So like it can. Deegan for me, the things that surprised me about Deegan were that the the, uh, the rounding out of his of his game that you mentioned. Yeah, he has a very high tackle count, um, and you know he's getting over the ball more and, and getting getting you know more than the, more than the odd turnover. Those were things which I didn't necessarily expect to see from this season. Um, I thought that he'd still be the same player that he was as a as a twenty, and that he'd play a little bit wider in the role that that Declan Kidney had um, had Jamie Heasel playing in, in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, which was which is sort of a highlight of of Kidney's coaching. Um, was that he introduced that pattern of that we would use. Uh, Heaslip especially but Ferris as well out as a as a third centre which I thought was really interesting because it really played to their strengths mm. now we didn't we didn't really stick with that for a long time um, but I thought that's what we'd see from Deacon whereas he's been much more rounded much um, and 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 really comfortable as a as a as a, a guy who plays quite a lot of rugby in the, in the Pro 14 this season it's been very impressive so he was on the bench for the match against uh, Saracens and he got I don't know, like a minute, three or four yeah. minutes at the end of the match. Um, is he in contention for a more prominent role in the semi-final, or is it? I don't see is it. Too soon. I think yeah, we're singing his praises there, but I don't see it. I would see. Um, there's there's three players um, in currently injured or iffy: Sean O'Brien, Reese Ruddock, and Jack Conan. Um, and then there's the back row that started against the Saracens, which was Fardy, Levy, Jordy Murphy. So I think I would be surprised if um, if the starting pack changed from the Saracens pack. And then I think they're going to go with two back rows, um, one of whom I expect will be Sean O'Brien and one of whom will be either Conan or Ruddock. I don't think that Deegan will get into the match day squad in that eventuality. I think that Leinster will look to um Leinster will look to put put the Scarlets into the meat grinder mm. and bring on um start with a, start with the pack that started against Saracens and bring on a lot of heavy hitters uh, and really ask Scarlets to be as tough as Leinster can be. You know, if you can bring Jack McGrath, Andrew Porter Sean O'Brien and Reese Ruddock or Jack Conan off the bench um, on, you know, between 50 and, and 60 minutes, you're bringing in an awful lot of heavy hitters. And I think that's that's what um, Lancaster and Leo Cullen is. I don't think that's going to be the whole of the game, but I think that is going to be a really important part of it. Yeah, I expect to see a lot of territory and mauling from Leinster uh, just to prevent the Scarlets getting opportunities for turnovers, mm. prevent the opportunity for uh, for rooks and for sort of the Scarlets are going to spread out and I think Leinster are going to kick it up in the air or kick it in behind them, put it into the corners and, and look to maul it an awful lot and keep the ball off the deck. Um, do you think that Munster 
will be happy to have Racing or would they have been happier to have Claremont? I think they'll be happy to have Racing. They're very familiar with Racing at this stage. I think they've played them four times in the last two seasons, all yeah. three of them. Uh, and I think Munster will win that game. I'd be, I wouldn't be certain of, but I'd be really confident. You know, um, I think they have Racing's number. Racing will come out and they'll be big and strong and they'll muscle up the middle and, and they won't be able to put Munster away and, and Munster will uh, will squeeze a tight game at the end. Is Dan Carter the only difference between... Is he, is he, is he Racing's X-Factor? Yeah, yeah. They've got Teddy Thomas, who's obviously extremely talented. They've got Nakarawa, who's a huge talent and, you know, has... Oh, I wouldn't say single-handedly done for Munster before, but he was prominent in he Glasgow's was so triumph. Big yeah, and the great yeah. single-handed offloads. There was a joke there. I just couldn't make it happen. Um, you know, they've got Tefafanua. They've got Camille Shat. Like they've got quality there, but Munster have quality as well. Um, and I don't. I just don't think that there is any. I don't think there's any element of the unknown. Or any element of fear uh, that that Racing have for, but for anyway. what about say are we, they're not playing in Tomo Park? Uh, there's probably not going to be 15 minutes of video reviews to make sure everything goes their way. Um, they're not going to score two tries like they scored against Toulon. Um, there's a lot of things there that need to be wary of. Yeah, yeah, there is things they need to be wary of, but, um, you know, Toulon, Toulon were, were strong, and apart from, you know, that very iffy Simon Zebo um, possible penalty try incident, Munster defended outstandingly well against them in the, in the first half. You know, that... It was it was a forced bend but not break rather than an intentional bend but not break. But they didn't break really, and and may, they won't they won't score the same uh, very idiosyncratic type of tries. But they have they have talent and try scores, you know. Um, and hopefully Keith Earls will be back and Earlsey, team has got. If you know, Zebo's even halfway fit, he's he's a he's a threat. He like he scores bags of tries. Conway, Conway's got buckle, and they've been on, like they're on a mini tour. So like all the best Munster players were coming back from Ireland camp, yeah. and you know had had one week. Um, I think it was really good for the Irish teams to have played Toulon and Saracens in the quarters because got them at home. Um, my only concern for both Irish teams is, is Dan Carter so we're talking about pairs being overpaid I don't know what sort of money Carter's on but I'd imagine he's one of if not the highest yeah. paid player in the world but there are certain players that are worth paying for and Johnny Wilkinson was one of them for, for Toulon and yeah. uh, Dan Carter is, is certainly one of them for Paris and I just think that the difference I think the calmness the, and the the decision making and the confidence that everybody else will get from having Carter on the pitch is, I think it's one of the things to be feared from, uh, really from both Irish points of view. Uh, like if, you know, like if Racing beat Len or sorry beat Munster, you'd sort of hope that Len. Well, obviously you hope that Leinster would be beating Scarlets. Mm. Um, and you know, is he the only player left like that in the competition? Probably not. Uh, Probably Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton are yeah, the Conor, other are the other Conor two, Murray, you know, and I don't. It's a lot of value, and he also. I don't think the Scarlets. He's anyone, not a fashionable player anymore, but in terms of 
how many points he gives you. Lee Halfpenny is a very valuable player. Still an outstanding goal kicker. Um, so, you know, semi semi finals are. I know we have a we have a week of of Pro Twelve in between this game and the next, but uh, realistically, I think all eyes are on. If all eyes can be on two places, they're on Lanzarote and and Bordeaux. Um, just to go back to the two games that Leinster played against the Scarlets this season, they're both yeah. quite close to each other, and the, one of them was postponed because of snow. Both, um, yeah, both during the Six Nations window. Um, what was the Scarlets team like when we played them at home? Because I, I'm just overlooking the scores and uh, Kieran Frawley. Is his name Kieran Frawley? Yeah, that's right. Kieran yeah. Frawley, mm-hmm. uh, like. Came on at second centre in the yeah, match. Yeah, very for early. A yeah. lot of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Scarlets suffered more uh, than they've ever suffered before from international call ups, and they're not as strong in depth. They got a late penalty, last kick of the game type penalty, get a, a losing bonus point in that one. And mm. in the game at home in, in Parky Scarlets for them, they got a late penalty, or sorry, a late conversion. No, no it was a penalty. Penalty, penalty yeah, yeah, to tie it. To, yeah. to draw it. Um, they lost that Kiwi winger in early in the ODS who he scored diving uh, McPhillips McNichol yeah, yeah. Um, which weakened yeah his like which weakened their yeah. back three because first of all they played a lot of width and second of all he's he was really really good uh, last season I hadn't seen too much of him play this season I think he's only back from a shoulder injury he is with just the, just before yeah, he injured they started, himself their again. first do you see the, the thing with the Scarlets and the thing with Pivac was he at the start of the season he picked I think he picked the same. I think he picked eight backs, or maybe nine backs, to start games for first like the first seven or eight games. Now, if you just bear that in mind, that means you're picking you're picking players to start six games in a row. Most of the players were in the team all the time. It was Garrett Davies, um, Patchell, Hadley Parks, Asquith, Scott Hadley Williams, Parks, Scott Williams, or JJV yeah. Davies. And Lee Halfpenny, and they were playing all the time, and they were running up buckets of points. They streaked out into a lead, uh, and then they got, you know, injury to JJV Davies, and and international call-ups broke them apart a little bit, and they haven't been as coherent as they were at the start and at the end of last season. Now they're still quality players. They miss Jonathan Davies, who who wouldn't? Yeah, uh, Hadley Parks has been really good this season. Yeah. Um, so they have they have quality, and I think Ty Byrne has been even better this season than he was last season. And uh, James Davies is, is playing super rugby as well. But Ireland were able to do to a very scarlets oriented uh, Welsh team. Um, what what they were able to do to them was was really shut them down, keep the ball away from them, and. You know, overpowered them and and grind them into submission, and this is that was a Welsh team which had Alan Wynne Jones in it. I know our love affair with Alan Wynne Jones continues unabated, but the Scarlets don't have an Alan Wynne Jones in their in their pack. You know, Ty Byrne is a super player, but he's nothing like he's just not the same sort of player as Alan Wynne Jones. Um, so I think that's where Leinster will be looking to target. Leinster actually, you know, it, it didn't look like a huge pack against the Saracens because, you know, no pack looks big against the Saracens. Even Toulon don't look big against the Saracens, especially when Saracens pick Nick Asique on 
you know, who's a six foot seven, nineteen stone blindside, uh, and Shock Burger, who's a six foot four, eighteen stone open side. Yeah. You know, so no, no pack looks big against Arsons, but Leinster have a big pack. You know, with Tyg Furlong, Devon Toner, James Ryan, Scott Fardy, and um, and I think that that's that's how they how they will attack the Scarlets, attack and contain them, is by you know by playing a very forwards oriented game. Let's say Sean O'Brien comes through unscathed against uh, Benetton at the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, does he challenge for uh, the starting berth at seven? No way. <laughs> Not no. a chance? No. Um, and then would he nudge? So who was the two? It was... Uh, Ruddock and Deegan. Ruddock and Deegan on the bench. So yeah, it looks like our boy Max is... Um, is going to get the nudge off the bench if Sean O'Brien let's, let's presume Sean O'Brien can uh, get through the Benetton game mm. um, it's not a bad sub to have nice no, you know if he can if he if he's a if he's a decent hour against Benetton a decent 50 minutes like he's shown before in the past he can come back and perform at a very high level and you know at his, at his best or even at 80% Sean O'Brien is a really good player but he would want to be at his best to be playing at the at the same level as Dan Levy at the moment. Mm. Like Levy is playing super superstar level of rugby, and um, and another guy who who is playing a really high level of rugby is and has been all season in his last season for Leinster for the immediate future is Jordy Murphy. And Jordy's playing regularly, so I'm probably a bit more Jordy's out than Sean O'Brien. Um, Notwithstanding what you're saying about his ability to come back and play, like he's he's a guy who's got very little rugby on the clock this season. Um, can he can he get up to can he get up to speed to to vote of confidence in him if if they go with them? And I suppose it speaks volumes for Leinster's depth that it's not an automatic selection. Um, so. It's a nice problem. It's a nice problem to have, mm. I guess. Um, one of the things that came up in the victory over Saracens was, and it wasn't particularly close at the end because we played so well at the start of the second half, but when um, Nick McCarthy came on, the the crowd started doing a lot of sighing <laughs> as he put in a succession of fairly average box kicks under the impression, having watched a lot of Conor Murray, that that's what Scrum has to do every time they get the ball. Um, the reason he's playing is because Jamison Gibson Park is the unlucky Antipodean uh, if you pick Fardy and you pick James Lowe um, do you think there's any reason why we wouldn't go with the same combination of Fardy and Lowe as our two Antipodeans to play in the European Cup or would you say would that give you cause to doubt when you say maybe Larmer's back and we'll still pick Ferg and James Lowe doesn't get a shot we're not Leinster but um, what would you think would you think it's the, do you think there's a risk there or do you think that's the risk you take? There is a risk there and I think it is the risk you take. Uh, Nick McCarthy's he's he's actually, you know, a very good player. Uh, well no he's not. That's 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 overemphasizing it. He's he's shown that he could, he can be a good player. Uh, he was he looked fractured and, and scrabbly when he came on uh, against Saracens and didn't didn't do Leinster any favours whatsoever Jameson Gibson Park I think has been one element of his game which has improved massively from last season is his kicking 
which has been really good this season. The second element is that his tackling has been better. And if I could have him in the side ahead of Nick McCarthy and not have to sacrifice James Lowe or Scott Friday, I'd do it in the cliff of fingers. I felt a bit sorry for the flack that McCarthy, McCartney. I did. I should have been, I was over at this, but there was a lot of sighing. Was, was getting partly because I felt that he was taking the responsibility on himself because he just looked at Joey Carberry and thought, this guy's not going to kick the ball. He's just going to, like, we need to be playing down in their half. We need to be playing far away from our own try line. Mm-hmm. And Carberry's just going to be spreading it across the halfway line in a variety of phases with beautiful passes. Like, I really, really enjoy watching Joey Carberry play rugby, particularly from, like, the more elevated, the higher up I am in the stands, the more I enjoy it. And I I asked for him to be played fullback against the Italians. Um, but I have a real concern about his game that he is Ian Madigan 2.0 that he just like his his decision making against Fiji when the Fijians were coming more and more into it and he just kept passing the ball and I was thinking to myself these guys want to have an open game like this is this is a savage Fijian team they're nearly at full strength mm. um, their their running ability and their handling ability is phenomenal and we're not kicking the ball into the corner like Carberry's just moving it across that like between the two tens for for a succession that just kicked the effing ball into the corner. And I thought the same watching him play against Saracens for Leinster. I was just like, just boot it. And he did put in a cross kick, but like it was an attacking kick. And his his mindset, there's like it's all like every time I see um Ross Byrne play, I'm critical of him. But I also find myself going, Ross Byrne has a superb temperament. And Ross Byrne is, there's no other way to say, like, he's he's just lucky. And it's not luck. Like, good things just seem to keep happening around Ross Byrne. So even though, like, compared to Joey Carberry, he takes the ball far too deep. He doesn't have the same running ability. He doesn't have the same passing range. Like, he wins. He keeps winning. And he keeps putting, he keeps putting his pack going forward. So I... I enjoy watching Carberry probably more than any other rugby player in Ireland from an attacking point of view, mm-hmm. but from a sort of an all-round point of view, like I'm, I'm really concerned that he will not develop his, he, he just won't develop his game. And it was, it was the criticism I have. Uh, I was, it was the fear I had for Ian Madigan that he wouldn't develop his game, and his, 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 his kicking out of hand just never got any better, and his appreciation of what he had to do just never seemed to develop. Where we get to a stage where. He played against Argentina in 2015 and they were just able to bomb up in attack. Sorry, they were able to bomb up in defence really fast line speed because we didn't have the ability to put it in behind them. So you're saying Carby should move to Ulster? (sighs) Even if he moves to Ulster, I think to become the player that he could be, he needs to become more conservative if you want to put it that he he needs to build his all-round game if i'm to draw an analogy with another sporting event that i went on during the week it's rory mcelroy like rory mcelroy is a sumptuous ball hitter now he he wasn't striking the ball well to get it in close to the pin on the 18th but his putting is is brutal and joey carberry's kicking is the is rory mcelroy's putting at at the moment and he's he's got to make a decision can he can he get it any better? And he's got to embrace it. Is what I would think because well, the, the thing about, he's so talented. Yeah, the thing about moving to Ulster, which you know has been coming up for months and months and months, is Ulster have no coach for next season. 
you know, just by going somewhere and not receiving, you you have no idea who your coach is going to be. If he went somewhere and they appointed Matt O'Connor as a coach, sorry, Matt, that would be a shit move. Mm-hmm. Like Matt O'Connor, Ian Madigan playing under Matt O'Connor was a very different Ian Madigan playing under Joe Schmidt. Jimmy Gopper playing under Matt O'Connor was a very it was a very different Jimmy Gopper playing under Doy Young, who's tight head prop, you know. So you're you're coaching the coaching that you get. Like you'll train five or six times to every match you play, and people say you can't replicate, um, you can't replicate what you do in matches, and that's true. But what you do every day is what you are as a player. So Ian um, Madigan didn't get well coached when in Leinster when. Joe Schmidt left. Up to that point, Madigan was progressing well. Mm. And if Joey Carby doesn't... Uh, if Joey Carby is getting well coached at Leinster, he's not getting to play at number 10 this season. Because, largely because, you know, he had a big injury and... Yeah. And competition is competition and Ross Byrne took advantage of the competition. Joey Carby wasn't able to get the jersey off him. I think that's an extremely legitimate. It's not like Ross Byrne can't play for Ireland. It's not like Ross Byrne is an old journeyman. They're the same age. Mm. Um, um, so, Carberry to Ulster. I should may, say it maybe, was using Ulster as a cipher for a team that will play him at out half all the yeah, time. Yeah, but maybe if Ulster had a coach, um, like if, if Les Kiss had, if even if Les Kiss was, had stayed on there or if, if Ulster weren't such a, like Ulster had been an absolute, it's been an Anas Horribilis for them this season. Uh, so I, I, I just don't see that that is like, I think the idea that that game time is a cure-all is very deeply flawed and wrong frankly mm. um, I certainly think there's an element with Joey that he's probably not a closer he's not a guy you bring on to finish out a match because uh, he's going to keep the ball in his hands uh, if you're like winning a game I mean he has notably come on and finished off the game against New Zealand. Played a sizable chunk of that game. Played yeah, a, well, Mads, Mads, Ian Madigan played against uh, France in France when we won the 2014 Six Nations. He came on at the end for Sexton and and actually played a very conservative and very coherent set of, of plays in which he kept on getting the ball at 10. We still played a lot of off 10 because it was a Schmitz team. And he kept on moving people around him and back in towards the breakdown so that his forwards, who were pretty tired at that stage, didn't have far to go. And that was it. You know, that was, it was a classic case of a 10 doing what he'd been coached to do in that situation by a good coach. Schmidt had told him what he needed to do. It's about four or five different plays, drags, inside passes to wingers coming in, that sort of thing. And it was really effective. So I think, I think as well, it's, it's worth remembering that that, style of rugby in that series of play was in direct response to the way that we finished against New Zealand Yeah, in the the last minute match if you want to call it that uh, where with Drico off the pitch we just went pick and jam pick and jam pick and jam and particularly with Nigel Owens even playing at home which is unusual particularly with Nigel Owens who, who loves drama in a match and favours the All Blacks because they're, they're capable of producing that mm-hmm. drama uh, was always likely to pick the the sandbag and pick and jam mm-hmm. team. So Joe Schmidt came up with that series of play that you've outlined that es- essentially ended with the ball going into the same place. Yeah, exactly. But 
didn't but look miles better. Not, 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 not yeah, but but look much better. So uh, yeah, it does a lot of it. A lot of it comes back to coaching and sort of coachability. And then you come to the sort of the question of not only is it you know where does where does Carberry play? So does he go to Province? You know, does he go to Province Two rather than staying in Province One, or does he you know does he go to the White Province rather than the Blue Province rather than using numbers? Is is the question is then position is like what's what's the best place for him to play as rugby mm. if for whatever brilliant footballing gifts he has if he doesn't have the sort of the the decision making to play at number 10 if he doesn't have the sort of the patience to be conservative uh should he play somewhere else because he definitely should play somewhere he's brilliant well i mean there's a guy who's probably coming to the end of his career who's playing a fairly significant bit of game time this season for leinster who was signed as an out half and like he ended up becoming the best utility back of all time. I'm talking about Easton Asewa. <laughs> um, but like maybe Joey, you know, maybe Joey's sort of like gonna end up playing a bit like him, a lot of fullback. Yeah, he's there's there's an albatross hanging around Carberry's neck, and that Graham Henry said after a week of coaching, "Oh, you've got your out half for the next next ten years." Now, if if uh, if somebody as like Andy Robertson on it, left back for the next ten years. If somebody is steeped in the game, somebody who has the credentials of Graham Henry says something like that. You do really well to listen to, but on the other hand, you know circumstances intervene in rugby careers all the time, and at the moment, like I I think it's I think it's really possible. That Joey Carberry gets played at ten, probably at the start of next season, instead of Ross Byrne getting all those those games that he got when Carberry was injured and Sexton got injured or was was unavailable for a selection, and and then Carberry is just plays ten a lot of the time for Leinster uh, because Sexton is going to be really really kept out of harm's way next season, and and this debate just goes away. Mm. Yeah, and it's worth like I I've noted a few times that Leinster play a more conservative game this year, and I thought it was in response to how to integrate the internationals coming back from playing with Schmidt. But I think it's also worth bearing in mind that when they played that really how I would describe it would be effervescent style of rugby, um, with a lot of the kids coming through and with a lot of the internationals gone, it was Carberry at the helm, mm. like and. and Given given the scenario that you outlined, like Leinster with Joey Carberry playing would absolutely hum and purr with whatever sort of variety of the backline uh, comes in, whether it's Ringrose playing at second centre, James Lowe playing all the time, uh, if it's other guys like Conor O'Brien maybe getting a bit more game time mm-hmm. and a bit more familiarity, Mullen, like Barry Daly, there's... Tommy O'Brien, Tommy O'Brien, uh, Dave, Dave Carney maybe playing it at fullback, fullback and yeah. sort of giving that attack and thrust. And there's an awful lot of unlocking. There's an awful lot of potential that can be provided by an attacking out half there. Um, so it's 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 wait and see, but I I don't think it's as you said, I don't think it's cast in stone for the next ten years at the moment. No, nor do I. Um, I also didn't think those those box kicks were as. They weren't as awful. One of them was straight out, which is terrible. But like, most of them were just kicking the ball down the pitch, and like, they weren't going to score many enough tries to. Anyway, that's irrelevant. Um, semi-final predictions. You've already said that you think Munster uh, are going to do it. 
I think you echoed him. Let's get some numbers in those predictions. Yeah, 21-19 to Munster. <laughs> I'm like 20 points to 18 to Munster. <laughs> it's just the script is made up. And I'm like, I really hope it's Ian Keatley kicking to kicking kicking near the end to get the heroic. Because it'll be Conor Murray now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Conor Murray blindfolded from 70 meters. Yeah. <laughs> On his bad foot. <laughs> And and what about uh, Leinster taking on the Scarlets? I'm gonna say um, twenty four eighteen to Leinster. Yeah, twenty six fifteen to Leinster. Yeah, like twenty six twelve to Leinster. Yeah, so it's it's happening. Inevitably, we are always wrong with these things. <laughs> It's all because the Premiership has relegation. That's the only reason there's going to be two oh. Irish teams playing in Bilbao. When a, when a butterfly farts in. <laughs> <laughs> when a butterfly farts in six ways. I need you, booming granny. I said, I want you, booming granny. Booming granny. Booming granny. Booming granny. Good and Sound corny, but here's some sex rhymes for those that are horny. For your booming granny with the booming system, said I love you, won't leave you till you got some.